0: Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious. This show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr AIA
1: this is American Building and I'm your host Atif Khadr I'm the founder of Commonplace join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls crosswalks and rail crossings balconies buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the current state of student housing, how student housing differs from traditional multifamily housing and the economic and social impacts student housing can have on surrounding areas. You'll join me in learning about The Elm, a project that attracts students, university affiliates, and young professionals to downtown New Haven. So student housing has been in the spotlight over the past few years. Before the pandemic, there was a shortage of student housing driven by a generationally high level of college enrollment, itself driven by the private credit market to finance higher education. During the pandemic, student housing was almost completely empty. Now, after the pandemic, mirroring the trends of revenge travelers, there seemed to be revenge students desiring a residential experience with other students after years of living in their parents' basements. That is driving vacancy to historically low levels again, albeit with a smaller set of colleges than before as a mini higher education bubble burst with the advent of Zoom school, shuttering colleges across the country. That low vacancy is also pushing new investment in this asset class, with a nod towards buildings designed to meet post-COVID HVAC standards and buildings that are around universities with healthy business models. Student housing is considered a subset of multifamily housing. Student housing itself can vary a lot. It can be on campus or off campus. It can be single family or multifamily. Accommodations can be luxury or basic. They can be dormitories, which are, in other words, units without ensuite bathrooms and kitchens, or actual apartments. There are an estimated 8.5 million student housing beds across the U.S., and that is expected to grow to 9.2 million this decade. That works out to an additional 73,000 beds per year or six Yales every year. The National Multifamily Housing Council released a fascinating report on the future of student housing. Check it out at the link in the show notes. The economic and social impacts of student housing can be enormous in both good and bad ways. Student housing, when privately held by a for-profit entity, can be a significant source of property tax revenue for municipalities that are starved of it because the nonprofit status of universities precludes them from paying those very same property taxes. Student housing when off campus can drive business for food and beverage outlets and other retail because the students living there often aren't cooking and have disposable income. And for anyone who has spent time in New Haven or any other college town, there's a noticeable vibrancy that comes from the large changing array of domestic and international students that live there. That is why New Haven is New Haven, as opposed to say Waterbury, Connecticut, the similarly sized city I bet you haven't heard of. Now on the bad side, student housing can push up pricing for other types of multifamily because students sometimes have a higher willingness to pay than typical residents. For example, rents in Chapel Hill Where the University of North Carolina is located, increased 24% last year when the university reopened. That said, 43% of students in America are what is considered housing insecure, which is often driven by not being able to find something that meets their needs at a price point they can afford. About one quarter of those who are housing insecure experienced homelessness. Sound familiar? This is the American housing affordability crisis. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in February 2022 with developer Nick Falker. Nick is the Managing Director at Cambridge Realty Partners, a development and asset management firm based in New Haven, Connecticut. His father started the firm to focus on office and industrial assets, and now the company's focus is on multifamily. Previously, Nick worked at Cigna Realty Investors and Bristol Group. He began his career at Eastill Secured in San Francisco. He is a graduate of Colby College. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Nick.
2: Thanks, Atif. Great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: So as you were starting up the, the second iteration of, of Cambridge Realty Partners, what were some of the the challenges and some of the, the, the learnings that you had as you were setting down that course?
2: Well, biggest challenges to starting a real estate company, the biggest challenge, in my opinion, is the capital. It's a mm-hmm. capital intensive business. Um, you are buying hard assets and, and there's all all of the good that comes with that people always talk about the tangible nature Mm -hmm. of it relative to other asset classes and the challenges of that, which is it's, it's by definition, capital intensive Mm -hmm. because you're buying a real asset. So, or you're building a real asset either way. So, you know, there, there's an inherent conflict there when you're going for a startup, but you need heavy capital that obviously doesn't exist with internet startups. So you kind of, you need to have either an angel investor, a family member, someone that's willing to back you, or you need to be old enough and have been in the game long Mm -hmm. enough to show a track record and have in your back pocket a a stable of more institutional investors that are ready to back you for professional reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's an inherent friction to starting up a real estate company that's always been there. And it hasn't really changed with the All of the evolution that's gone on in in the the business world of the last 20 years, that hasn't really changed. And that was certainly my biggest challenge. And in many ways, it remains one of our biggest challenges. We've grown and our access to capital has grown. Mm -hmm. But as we grow with each iteration, the next round of deals that we do grow in in step with that. So we're always pressing the next bigger loan, the next bigger equity check. And I suppose that that challenge will never stop. And Mm -hmm. that's exciting. But the zero to one stage is certainly the the most challenging because once you have the track record proven, it's much easier to say, well, we're just stepping up in terms of size and scale, but this is something that we've done for a long time. That's a much easier conversation for a capital source than we're starting out on our own. And this is why we think it's going to work.
1: What were the things that you mentioned when you were raising capital for your first deal? So I really,
2: all I had to point at, (laughs) which I, I, I suppose any startup real estate person has to point at is their previous experience, which Mm -hmm. had been extremely relevant. It had been multifamily development. It had been industrial and office building value add projects with Bristol Group. You know, when I was at Cigna, we deployed several hundred million dollars of equity into class A institutional multifamily development around the country Mm -hmm. in tier one and tier two cities. So, And and I'd been in the business from 2006 until 2015 at that point. So it was almost a 10-year stretch of very, very relevant experience. But the question that most people had was, but you haven't done it yourself. And it was an extremely valid question. And it proved to be a a on point question as well. Because when I did start doing it myself, there were things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, The intuitive things that when you, I imagine that you only gain by doing it yourself, such as intuition for how much it costs to renovate a 600 square foot apartment versus a 1300 square foot apartment and if you're going to class a standards or you're taking a class Mm -hmm. c building and bringing it to class b minus um, those the dollars involved in those renovation differences that becomes intuitive quickly uh, especially if you have the the financial background in the the business but you don't develop the close intuition until you do it yourself Mm -hmm. and that can lead to mistakes and it led to mistakes on my end as well you know there were several projects we did in the beginning that were ultimately financially successful, but we made underwriting errors because we didn't have an extremely close eye for renovation costs. It was more broad brush estimation Mm -hmm. that we were building our pro forma with, which was got us 90% of the way there. So, um, you know, that's not to say they were fatal flaws far from it, but what could have been a 20% IRR maybe was an 18 because Mm -hmm. of those mistakes. So, and those are mistakes that we fixed and, and and that's how we've gotten better.
1: Out of curiosity for the construction underwriting, were there certain things that you uh, did have to turn the screws and tighten up a bit? Was it, I'm guessing it likely was the rough carpentry numbers. Those can swing a lot because of material prices or some of the specialty trades or yeah. specialty equipments. Was it both of those or were there specific uh, instances for you? Absolutely. In, in COVID or prior, Uh, for those first projects? For the first projects. Yeah.
2: I would say labor and materials. Absolutely. Um, All all of the above. The cost of labor varied wildly depending on the quality of the contractor, you know, and the amount of insurance that they had, et cetera. You know, it's very easy to renovate five units with kind of guys in a truck, (laughs) or you can renovate those five units with the same general contractor with all of the insurance qualifications and everything else that you would use for a ground up. 40 million dollar project and and that would cost something much different Mm
1: -hmm. and And he he or she would likely have a bigger truck right (laughs) that's right
2: and a much (laughs) bigger truck multiple (laughs) trucks (laughs) yes you know and there are pluses and minuses for all of these decisions and there's risks and benefits but yeah we we certainly could have done things better of course because we were a startup we didn't know everything and we don't know everything now Mm -hmm. and uh, and that's an endless process of uh, learning and improving
1: one thing in particular when I was uh, taking the experience from Nextel development and then starting my own development business to do value-add, opportunistic, small-scale, multifamily in Jersey was that the norm for construction contingency is 10% that's all right if you're doing a 100 million dollar deal but if you're doing a 5 million dollar deal especially if it's value add i learned to change the number from 10 to 25% to account for all of those things that you're just talking about
2: yes absolutely right when the budget's extremely small 10%s mm-hmm. not going to give you a lot of wiggle room to make a mistake not at all but but of course if if the budget's quite big you know now you're talking now you do have a few bucks to work with and we employ that that exact same strategy. We have a $40 million development in Bloomfield, Connecticut that's Mm -hmm. starting right now. And we have a 5% owner's contingency on it. Whereas Mm -hmm. with the Elm, our our downtown New Haven building that we just finished, I think we had a 10% owner's contingency in it. And that was a uh, 13 million. So a $13 million Mm -hmm. build in downtown New Haven versus a $40 million build. Significantly different, different underwriting there.
1: So let's pivot then to the Elm. The Elm is located in downtown New Haven and some of our listeners may not have heard of the city and those that have may automatically associate it with Yale. What is special about the city for you and what drew you to this particular site?
2: New Haven's a wonderful city. The location is great. It's on it's on the water, it's on the, on the sound and, and it's basically halfway between New York and Boston. It's on the train lines to New York, but it's got all of the benefits and, and niceness of Connecticut. It's not so dense that it's hard to get around Traffic's mm-hmm. not really a problem. It's also just got a ton of character. It's got grit. It's got Yale university. So it's got the college town, fun aspects to it. It's got a, a local longstanding uh, kind of grittiness with great food, great restaurants and a not too fussy, fancy vibe to it. So for mm-hmm. all those reasons, uh, my family and I love loved living here for 10 plus years. The site itself was brought to our attention on an off-market basis in 2019. So a local investor that I I know and knew at the time had a relationship with the seller who Mm -hmm. had owned the property for about 30 or 35 years. So the the site itself, the development site for the Elm, was a parking lot when we purchased it. And right next to the parking lot was a 100-unit building that we also purchased with it from the same seller. The parking lot that's now the Elm was, a, was the parking lot for the 100-unit building that we purchased. There's been a, a movement in New Haven, along with most American cities for the past 10 years, to, if not formally change their zoning laws, then to unofficially require less parking mm-hmm. in downtown urban areas, obviously to allow for more density, more building, in an effort to bring down housing costs. So anyways, we purchased that. The, the local investor that I knew brought it to our attention that he had a relationship with the seller and they may be interested in doing an off market Mm -hmm. transaction. And he needed help financing the project and getting it done. So he called me and and we got it done. And as soon as we closed on that acquisition, which was a $15 million acquisition of the hundred units plus the parking lot, we immediately started talking to the city of New Haven about entitling the parking lot for development. So Mm -hmm. that conversation with the city started right as we closed, which was February of 2019. And then with a lot of back and forth, formal and informal with the city, about a year later, we received building permits and broke ground for the Elm, which was uh, March of 2020 when we broke ground, right as COVID was unfolding. Mm -hmm. Perfect timing.
1: (laughs) So I think uh, probably one of the the best piece of advice that I got as I was starting a development company, uh, was sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have all the experience and all the other thing. Just buckle up. Building the middle yeah. of a pandemic. Development make, is hard up, and so.
2: <laughs> it is hard. And there's no matter what you're building, you're going to have unforeseen issues back to the contingency mm-hmm. conversation. The best advice I got when I was, Budgeting for the development of the elm was put in more contingency than than you think you need, and 100%. certainly don't use any rule of thumb from a fifty million or hundred million dollar development that you may have learned at a previous employer and apply it mm-hmm. to a much smaller project. Exactly as you said, on So, but there were many unforeseen issues. Most notably was global pandemic. Mm-hmm. I would say.
1: So let's take a like a step back a little bit. So more about New Haven. So there has been a boom of rental building construction in New Haven over the past seven to 10 years. And we've had the opportunity to tour buildings like the Novella and the Corsair, who else is developing in the area? And what did you take away from their projects as you started planning for the Elm?
2: Yeah, good question. So it's still mostly local developers until maybe the last two years, it was really local developers, meaning, mm-hmm. Connecticut, you know, there's Fairfield County developers and Hartford developers, but mostly Connecticut based folks. I would say in the last two to three years, that's started to bro- broaden out quite a bit. Some certainly institutional capital from New York and Boston has come into town. And even on the GP sides, Heinz just purchased a development site in Worcester Square in New oh, Haven. Wow. Um, and they are developing a, a two or 300 unit project there. So that is very new for New Haven. There's, mm-hmm. I think, the first signs of the city broadening were kind of institutional ca- or, or capital sources from further outside of, of Connecticut coming into town. And now they're coming into town on a GP basis where they're mm-hmm. actually buying sites, controlling sites, and developing sites. So you're certainly seeing that. I don't know whether that says something about New Haven or whether it says something about where we are in the capital markets. I'm not sure. Probably mm-hmm. a little of both. Mm-hmm. But, but that's all happening right now.
1: Yeah. So tell us about the development strategy in more detail. Mm-hmm. And who else is working on this project with you?
2: So we worked with a local design and build firm, Urbane New Haven. They were the architects on record and also the general contractor. They have both of those skill sets in house. They're a local company. I'm friends with the owner of the company and, and the partners there. And I had known them well before we started the project. So we did interview other architects and general contractors for the job. But going into the project, I spoke with the owner of Urbane New Haven. He said he was very excited about the, mm-hmm. the concept, the location. And basically, it was, uh, it, I'm going to do the project with, with this group, unless we can't make it work for some reason. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the mindset going in. That was a relationship-based. I mean, that was a good a good story of a small town project coming together. It was it was two gr- local companies that knew each other that that had every intent to do the project together. And they were excellent. They designed a very unique, cool building. And then they executed the build through what I would imagine was probably the most challenging 18 months to build a building that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the supply chain issues, all the pricing pressures, all the labor issues labor. as the pandemic rolled out, all of the political uncertainty and you know, I, if, if you recall, in the beginning of 2020, when COVID was um, unfolding, mm-hmm. New York City actually shut down construction for a period of time. I think mm-hmm. Boston did as well. So,
1: the state of New Jersey did as well, and my project shut down for two months. Oof, yeah,
2: tough. So we were looking; we had uh, we're right on the cusp of closing the construction loan in March of 2020 for mm-hmm. the Elm, and uh, we were staring down this pandemic environment and looking at what was happening in New York first, and, mm-hmm. and then later Boston, as you just said, New Jersey, where the governors were shutting down construction. Obviously, if we closed the loan and, and had drawn on the loan, we'd be paying mm-hmm. interest on that. And and similarly, if, if the GC was buying out all of their goods and then sitting on them and, and labor and sitting on them without able to begin building, the cost implications of that are huge. Mm-hmm. So that was a very difficult decision to make. Governor Lamont, the governor of Connecticut, issued a formal statement that that's available on YouTube um, sometime in the middle of March, where he actually cited New York and Boston having shut down their construction industries. And then he specifically said, we are circling construction as one of the few core industries that we will do everything within our power Mm -hmm. to to remain open as it's a, a bright spot for the local Connecticut economy. And it has the ability to maintain operations, mostly outdoors. And mm-hmm. for a variety of other reasons, given the fact that everything else was shutting down, he specifically cited construction as something he was going to try to keep open. So that was really the, the trigger point for me. Um, once he made that statement, mm-hmm. I spoke to our lenders. I said, look, guys, we, we need to close on this and move forward now or never. And mm-hmm. they were an excellent partner. They closed and we started building and we were never shut
1: down in the case of New Haven it's not just any other second city literally Yale is right there. Yes, that would have been a
2: different different conversation with our capital sources had that not been the case. We're we're basically right on the edge of Yale's campus and mm-hmm. and had that not been the case. If this was a more suburban multifamily mm-hmm. project, I imagine the friction we would have encountered with the capital sources would have been would have been more significant, but that was huge for this. And then, of course, Yale did shut down as soon as we started construction. So <laughs> the construction <laughs> industry did not. But within weeks of us starting construction, Yale sit, shut down, sent all their students home, and then it was very uh, unclear whether they'd be coming back for the fall. And, and as you recall, in the fall of 2020, they came mm-hmm. back in a very hybrid way. So there's mm-hmm. far fewer students on campus than, than there are now. But uh, anyways. Um,
1: Do you know what I would imagine then is – it's probably been a different story of being next to a major research university that is in a city versus a major university research university, for example, University of Connecticut, which does not have the benefit of a multi-industry city like New Haven. Yeah, because then you can balance those ups and downs that you might have within one particular area.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you have a, a more diversified tenant base potential tenant base mm-hmm. if you're in a city. You know, you can can there's so many options at, at your disposal to if you have a, um, a well located multi quality multi-family building in a city, mm-hmm. there's so many options available for you to generate income in a, in a challenging environment. If there's a recession or a pandemic, you can switch to Airbnb, you can do all sorts of things to generate income. And the reason for that is people need places to live always. So if, if you're flexible with the ways in which you lease your building, you can stay leased. If you're in a more suburban area, if you've built purpose uh, student housing at Yukon, to use your example, mm-hmm. in Stores, Connecticut, which is very woodsy, very suburban, and Yukon shuts down due to a pandemic, you're, you've are you got an empty building. You don't have any other options.
1: Mm-hmm. So speaking of buildings, so walk us through the building that's that's your new construction project so our listeners could imagine what they would experience when they walk through it when it's completed.
2: So you you enter the building. It's got an industrial vibe to it. There is a concrete podium that the parking is underneath, and the Mm -hmm. building really sits on top of that. And as you enter the lobby, you can see kind of the exterior wall of the concrete podium. On that podium, we had a local artist do a uh, kind of a mural wall painting of um, kind of a New Haven landscape. It's got kind of a a mix of like bright, cool colors with uh, uh, like an urban industrial vibe to it. So um, that's that's the, the vibe of the building. Um, there's, kinda, there's a gym um, immediately to your right and to your left of the lobby. There are some mm-hmm. conference rooms, some shared workspace areas with some TVs where people can break off into study groups and or, or, or work from home in a more comfortable place outside of your apartment. And there's, there's an elevator bank, six-story building. Each floor has, uh, I think, six to eight units on it. It's a mix of studios to four-bedroom units. And the roof deck is, uh, there is a roof deck, which is, you can take the elevator all the way up or you can take the stairs mm-hmm. and we've got some cocktail tables, some lounge chairs, cornhole. You know, it's just, a, it's a, yeah, <laughs> right. Check all the boxes for your roof deck. Yeah. And it's got a cool view of downtown and, and when the weather. And the Yale right. campus too. Absolutely. It's there. It looks right at downtown and the Yale campus. Yeah. So uh, people, uh, when we opened the building in the fall, people were using it quite a
1: bit. As you are going through the design process with Urbane and New Haven, what were some of the choices that you made in terms of finishes? Given this is a multifamily building, there's a student population, so you want it to look good but also stand up. Uh, What were some of those decisions you made?
2: So, yeah, so we developed it to luxury standards, but we made unique strategic decisions, I would say, that a lot of our competitors didn't make. You'll see a lot of kind of cookie-cutter new multifamily tendencies when you tour a lot of these these buildings. And um, we found a lot of those amenities were not being utilized by many of the tenants mm-hmm. in the comp- competing buildings. Uh, a theater room, for example, was a good, a good example of that I, we found that there was very little usage of mm-hmm. those types of concepts. And that was prior to the pandemic. And with COVID, people are using those types of things significantly less. So we emphasized uh, a good fitness center. We emphasized um, bright modern, warm colors. We emphasized modern and efficiency usage and flow of space, but we probably downplayed some of the the tricks, you know, things like a theater room. We opted for multiple conference rooms with TVs that you can project on and and whiteboards that you can brainstorm on. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have some small ones for groups of two or four, and we have some bigger ones for groups of six or eight. And I think as the work from home aspect of life has really grown with the pandemic, those spaces are just very, very valued. So that that worked out to our benefit for sure.
1: I think that's an excellent point that you make is having toured a number of the large multifamily properties in New Haven. It, I always notice the fact how empty all of their amenities are, especially with the student population, which doesn't necessarily have a nine to five schedule. There should be people in the gym all the time, people in the country all the time. And when I asked a broker about why that is and what the situation is, she said, people like the idea of having amenities, not necessarily using those amenities. And it seems like such a foolish game to play. Just make your apartments nicer to them, right? I think that's spot on, but you you can't pour all
2: that money into your, into your apartments and not spend on the amenities. So you have to figure out where you want to allocate the money. But I think that's spot on. I think the the usage of the amenities, generally speaking, is much lower than um, the costs associated with constructing them would would suggest. But on the flip side, you kind of have to choose where you want to build out your amenities if you want to compete. So you do need to check certain boxes. And we're building more suburban, two new project multifamily developments now that are more suburban than the Elm. One's outside of Hartford, and in a suburb of Hartford, and one's in New Jersey. And it's exactly that. We have to choose which amenities we want to spend big on for the tour through the project, knowing that we need to capture eyes and attention and, and check certain boxes through the tour. But the utilization
1: of it's it's lower than it should be. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the utilization of people util- utilizing those spaces, you talk to us more about who you thought your renters were going to be as you were underwriting this deal, how that changed over the course of the project and who actually is renting at the property.
2: Yeah. We expected the um, tendency to be 80 to 90% Yale, and Mm -hmm. that would be mostly graduate students. That was our expectation. Maybe 90% graduate students, 10% undergrad of the 80 to 90% that we thought would be Yale. And if the 80 to 90% had been Yale, the the other 10 to 20%, we expected to be the young professional cohort. Mm -hmm that ratio of yale to young professional is more uh, more in line with 50-50 now. Really? And that's a result of covid. There are a lot of folks, relatively a lot of folks moving from new york into new haven right now. And I say relatively cuz there's a lot of folks moving from new york everywhere. Florida, mm-hmm. Connecticut, New Jersey. So,
1: Colorado, Georgia. Right.
2: Yes. So New Haven's getting a, a a share of that, which is great for New Haven. And we've got an excellent location, and we've got some big units that are more accommodating for young professionals or mm-hmm. maybe even young families that have the ability to rent a relatively more expensive apartment in New Haven. So um, we're capturing a, a, a segment of that.
1: Excellent. And uh, out of curiosity, do you find folks signing multi-year leases because if they're for a PhD program? That could be 5, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years.
2: <laughs> yes. The, the requests are there. No, okay. no question about it. People are definitely asking for two or three-year leases. We're actually mm-hmm. not accommodating because the lease has been so well received and so strong. We're, we're signing one-year leases, and we said we'd love to keep you. And at the end mm-hmm. of your year, renew. But oh. the requests are certainly there for two or three-year leases.
1: That's a great uh, word of confidence in the product that you've created. March 2020, COVID. And that spring into summer, the New York Times estimated that 5% of New York City's residents left and never came back. To put that into context, that is the entire population of Minneapolis or Cleveland or Tampa. So I would see a lot of people. If all you did was look at the Instagram feeds of celebrities, it would seem that they all uh, went to East Hampton. And in reality, many of those actually came to Connecticut to buy homes or to uh, rent properties. Uh, could you give us a, a window, an on-the-ground look at what the residential market was like in New Haven before COVID, during COVID, and then after COVID? Maybe some more anecdotes of, of some of your renters. Yeah, absolutely. No,
2: Connecticut has certainly been a beneficiary of, of population growth from people leaving New York during COVID, and I do think a portion of that is, is permanent. How much of that is permanent? I I don't know, but a a portion is, I I believe. And the the residential market in Connecticut it's it's fragmented. You really have the Fairfield County residential market, the New Haven residential market, and kind of the Hartford, Greater Hartford residential market. All of those markets have risen um, in terms of property values and time on the market, and basically by any other metric, they've all risen across the board. Fairfield County unquestionably the most. Mm -hmm. So I think following the financial crisis until COVID Fairfield County, uh, single family market was, was soft and employers were basically, there was a kind of a net loss of, of employers from Southern Connecticut into New York and and other urban areas. And that obviously has been reversed a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, the residential market has come back strongly in Connecticut in New Haven. I don't really know the percentages, but single-family homes, I would assume, and it's it's also a very neighborhoody city. But mm-hmm. uh, so I, I bet it varies quite a bit from neighborhood to neighborhood. But in in the neighborhood I live in, for example, in East Rock, I would imagine single-family home values on average are up twenty to thirty percent. I think those that's pretty um, representative of the country, though. So I think over the past eighteen months or so, so twenty-four months, maybe. So yeah, I th- I, I think. New Haven has done well, Connecticut's done well. It's The quality of life here has, has always been an attribute and the natural beauty of it has always been an attribute mm-hmm. relative to Jersey or New York, no offense, mm-hmm. New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and th- those are things that just kind of came back to the forefront for people making decisions leaving, leaving New York.
1: So the reasons why someone comes to a New Haven and why they choose to stay, let's talk about that in more detail because I think the New Haven story is actually one that is repeated across the metro New York City area and then across other MSAs in the U.S. So one of the important things that we've talked about is this sense of place and these unique aspects that are are only New Havens in terms of everything from Yale to the pizza. So tell us more about the popular neighborhoods that are in New Haven and what you think makes them great places to live, perhaps beginning with East Rock.
2: Yeah. So... East Rock is a, a great place to live. It's it's less than a mile north of um, downtown New Haven. And mm-hmm. Yale Business School is basically in East Rock, a little separated from the core undergrad campus. Worcester Square, as you mentioned before, is a perfect analogy. It is kind of the Brooklyn vibe neighborhood of New Haven. And that's where the Heinz development site is that I mentioned earlier. It's a mm-hmm. 200 or 300 unit project that's, that's under construction now that Heinz is building. And uh, then you have downtown, which has become more viable of a place to live as more residential development has gone up there in the last few years. But still, in my opinion, is a less desirable place to live than East Rock or Worcester Square, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, East Rock and Worcester Square are still very walkable to downtown. And you can have more space. And it has really nice neighborhood amenities, coffee shops, bars, Mm -hmm. restaurants. And you don't have to be in an elevator building with Mm -hmm. parking challenges, for example, that you would have downtown. So there are obvious reasons to live in downtown New York or or downtown Boston. But I don't think that really applies to New Haven because the neighborhoods are so accessible, even Mm -hmm. by foot, uh, certainly on on a bike. So yeah, I mean, so it's it's a great place to live. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Talk about the neighborhoods that are north of downtown. I believe they're, around prospect street and science hill Mm -hmm. are those areas that are desirable for people moving from new york city for example yeah so
2: um well science hill really borders kind of the yale sphere and the east Mm -hmm. rock sphere and you know a slightly i hate to say rougher neighborhood Mm -hmm. on the other side of it so it kind of blends those those two areas there's been obviously a lot of investment from yale into into science park and, and there's Several new residential projects that are slated for development in that neighborhood. A mix of affordable housing and market rate housing that has affordable requirements that were instated in order to get the zoning variances that were needed to Mm -hmm. develop that density. So that's an interesting place to live. It's pretty gritty there. You know, it's got that commercial and office feel Mm -hmm. to it from Science Park, and it's next to some pretty gritty neighborhoods. Um, So it's definitely got a you know a, a mixed bag feel to it but and the the yale hockey stadium the the whale the Yale whale is right mm-hmm. there too, so that's a cool attribute of it as well
1: and then transportation's a really important thing, especially people relocating to New Haven. so what does New Haven have going for it in terms of getting there and getting around
2: yeah so. I mean, I would say the biggest thing is the Metro North stops in New Haven, the end of Mm -hmm. the Metro North line out of grand central stops in New Haven. So it's the last stop, which directly connects New Haven to Mm -hmm. New York city, which is fantastic by rail. And, you know, and any, from anywhere in New Haven, you can take an Uber to the train station, you know, within five, 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty outstanding. You can also take the Amtrak to Boston, go straight into South uh, South station. So you really don't need a car in New Haven. If you have a bike, you're pretty good. You can get to Boston and New York and and you can get to the airports there by public transportation relatively easily. There is a bus system in the city. And then there's a Yale shuttle, which is outstanding, actually. But you have to be a Yale uh, affiliate to use Mm a student or employee. But that's a really well, highly used system as well. But aside from that, I would not say it's the best public transport you've ever seen.
1: Oh, within the city itself, you mean? Within
2: the city, the bus hmm. system, yeah.
1: To yeah. be fair, I think yeah. as someone who's visited the city a number of times, it's, as you said, it's eminently walkable. You could literally park your car right around the green. And if you have a couple meetings, a couple things to do, you could pretty much like walk everywhere. It's not even that, that big of a deal, I think, at least personally. Definitely. Yeah, no, a, couple, a
2: mile in any direction will pretty much get you anywhere. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, and then also let's think of ferries are there any or those are actually neighboring cities that have those right neighboring cities so there's a
2: ferry from bridgeport to long island which is great you can avoid new york city if you're going to long island but not from new haven that i know Mm -hmm. about that would be cool though maybe we should look into that
1: (laughs) that'll be the the next part of cambridge's future infrastructure development
2: that's right absolutely
1: (laughs) Wonderful. So I think with all of this, these great details that you've given about New Haven, I don't know why anyone would not want to to move to the city. So Yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: circling back on a question asked a little bit ago about what, what portion of people coming into New Haven are staying here and why, mm-hmm. I think a significant portion of the people that have come to New Haven will stay here or mm-hmm. to kind of choose to stay here. The work from home aspect, obviously, has kind of released that flexibility into the workforce. That's affected the entire country and urban mm-hmm. centers across the country. Certainly, it's it that's an aspect here. And then, you know, you're in a little city without being in New York. So I think you have a lot of the claustrophobia, pandemic-related claustrophobia and traffic issues relieved by coming to New Haven from New York, but you don't give up all of the walkability and, and other amenities that you would want from a city. So- You kind of you get a little uh, little of both when you come to New Haven. You get the the relief of the congestion, but you Mm -hmm. still have all of those nice amenities.
1: I think it's they're all wins, and I think particularly uh, drawing people away from perhaps the urban areas they're familiar with to go to others, Uh, other parts of the country is, I think, a, a very big. Big benefit overall this past year, having spent time in 12 different places across the country, one each month. uh, I can tell you there's many amazing places to live beyond Brooklyn. Uh, So for example, Morgantown, West Virginia, I absolutely love. Uh, Durham, North Carolina, Charlottesville, Virginia, Austin, Texas. There's so many, so many great places. And New Haven is absolutely in my top 10 favorite cities in America. That's
2: awesome. Well, that's an impressive list to put it up with. So (laughs) that's great.
1: So we've had a chance to talk to the honorary mayor of uh, New Haven, Nick Falker. Thank you so much for for joining us today on the podcast.
2: Sure. Thanks, Atif. It's nice to be here. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.